I think that if I had tried to innovate my way through a career pathway or through energy or through business leadership or through how to lead teams, it would have been a spectacular failure. Like there's no reason to innovate when it comes to leadership. You read some Marshall Goldsmith or read some Patrick Lencioni or read some Jim Collins about how to run businesses. Read some Chris McChesney, Four Disciplines of Execution, favorite all-time business book. Read some Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Weeks, about how to prioritize your life, about like what's important and what's not important, and how to say no to stuff that just sucks your time and doesn't give you a whole lot back. Read about leaders like Team of Rivals, like uh, Lincoln, Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's an amazing case study in leadership. Read Dan Jurgen. Read The Prize and read The Quest and read the new map about how energy works. And again, it's not about having brilliant new ideas. It's about having the discipline and the courage to implement the ideas that have already been had in the world that you lead. And that's why for me, reading is so key. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel a podcast where we interview energy leaders in this space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. Today, we have the great pleasure of interviewing Rich Howe, who was recently named as Executive Vice President of Shell's Global Deepwater Business as of July 1st, 2023. During his more than 20 years at Shell, Rich has worked in upstream, downstream businesses across several global locations and in the US, most recently serving as Senior Vice President of Upstream Transformation. Prior to that role, he served as CEO of the North Caspian Operating Company in Kazakhstan and the chairman of the board of directors of ERA Energy. Rich joined Shell in 2002 as a pressure equipment engineer at one of their refineries. And Rich holds a lot of educational titles, so let me read them to you because they're really important. So he's got a mechanical engineering degree from Auburn University, a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology, and a petroleum technology from Curtin University in Australia, and a business administration from Duke University. Tons of education. He almost got a PhD, and we'll get into his story and kind of how he got out of that and now is AVP at Shell. And Rich currently lives in Houston with his wife, Robin, and their children, Gage, Audrey, and Asher. And he enjoys competitive road cycling and running for fun. So Rich, we cannot wait to uncover more about your story. And we're so thankful that you said yes to coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation. Really looking forward to this. Rich, I mean, even just running through your academia and everything that you did as far as the schooling is just incredible. And I think when we first spoke, you talked a lot about your father and growing up in Alabama and the work ethic that your father had instilled in you. And it just shows even by your introduction and the effort that you put in even to your education. Let's walk back to those beginning stages growing up in the farming community in Alabama seeing your father, who really started out as a construction labor worker, starting his own firm, which is absolutely incredible from the ground level up. And you mentioned a lot about your dad being hardworking, driven, and he really instilled that and showcased that in you as well. And that was something that you definitely followed him in. And also growing up, you knew very little about the energy industry. So it's incredible to see your journey here today with the long stint you've been with Shell. But tell us a little bit about those ambitions as a young child. What did you want to be when you grew up? Good. Well, hey, thanks for inviting me onto the show, Maciel and Jamie. Really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to today for a super long time. And 
I just think hats off and kudos to you for your passion for energy and for EE&I and for career mentoring. And anyway, I, I choose the venues where I show up very deliberately. And I'm here today because I'm super proud to be associated with you and what you're doing. Thank you. But you're right. I think to answer your first question about ambition, that's a pretty short answer because there was not a whole lot there initially. <laughs> I grew up in a rural, very rural part of Alabama outside of Montgomery, my hometown, Pike Road, Alabama. We were way out in the country and I grew up working on building fences and mowing pastures and working on neighbors' ranches on cattle and horses and working on tractors and shoveling stalls and doing landscaping and pretty basic kind of beginning there. But I was always super blessed and I think really privileged in that my parents, my mom and my dad, were A, present in my life, super present. My mom was passionate about education and about learning. And for her, it was all about let's study and learn and be creative and curious. And she made me take Latin as a kid, right? But it was great. I, I took Latin for five years and now it made it easier to learn languages, you know, 30 years after that. But my dad, he was in construction and commercial construction. And for him, it was all about hard work, uh, just really, really hard work. And so I would work with him nights and weekends on his construction jobs. And my summer jobs would be framing and doing concrete work. And yeah, that was really, really important to him. And he, I think, not only demonstrated that in his own life trajectory, kind of going from super humble beginnings to then running his own company to now being this legendary project manager in that whole community. And it really, it was just a huge blessing to be parented by those parents, by mom and dad. A little bit emotional. Anyway, in terms of energy, I knew zero about energy. <laughs> I wanted to know zero about energy. It wasn't relevant to me. At least I didn't think that it was or know that it was at the time. I was on a path briefly toward medicine and I wanted to be a doctor. And then I went and lived with a doctor for two weeks and then I did not want to be a doctor. I wanted to go into law next. I was big into debate in high school and spent almost every weekend the last two or three years of high school doing debate on the road and then changed my mind from that landed on psychology is like, this is what I'm going to do for a few weeks. And then decided that I was going to be an English major instead and write a lot and teach. So frankly, pretty aimless, but I was okay with the ambiguity. I knew that I was going to kind of get experiences in the future, which would help me to kind of converge on a direction. And my parents, I think to their great credit, did not freak out and say, it's time for you to figure out what you're going to do with your life. I think that they repeatedly, consistently just had this perspective of, look, just act with integrity, work hard, figure it out, but just act with integrity and work hard and it's going to be okay. I love already just the beginning of the podcast, so much to take away from. And I think a lot of people will relate of not really knowing what to do with yourself and like what you're going to study, what you're going to become. One day you want to be a doctor, a lawyer. I think we've all been through this and it's really refreshing to hear that even people like yourself that are so high up now that we look into these companies and sometimes we think they've had it all figured out from the beginning. And it's so nice to just hear some raw authenticity of even just the beginning and saying, I didn't really know what I was going to do. You mentioned how impactful and life-changing certain people can be in your life and career. And you actually had two people that till this day you remember because they changed truly your trajectory into becoming who you are today. And one of them was early on in your life. And the second one was later on in your adult life and your career at Shell. But can you tell us about that one teacher that made you love math and kind of changed the way you thought about your undergrad and you changed your direction truly because of this teacher? Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a great question. And thank you for that, Maciel. I think this person 
that comes to mind is her name's Beverly Ficken. And I haven't talked to her in so many years and I don't know what she's doing now. But when I was in my senior year of high school, I registered for calculus because I thought it sounded kind of interesting. Um, but to be perfectly frank, I was a bit of a gentleman scholar uh, at that at that time in my life. Um, I was not a particularly good student, especially in my senior year. Um, and I had never really loved math. And I kind of thought it was a necessary evil and I just could just get by. Um, and then I took AP Calculus with, with uh, Ms. Ficken. And she brought to that class such uh, passion and such clarity. And she, what I remember about um, Ms. Ficken, <clears throat> and um, I'm calling her Ms. Ficken, but I'm older now than she probably was then. So it's like, it's funny <laughs> how you <clears throat> remember things. But you know, she started with where we were and then, and then brought us to the concept that she, uh, it meant that, so she needed to find out where we were. So she, she took the time to invest and get curious about us as students and it wasn't for her about impressing the class with her knowledge and it wasn't about hitting sort of her teaching milestones and it wasn't about for her teaching to the top of the class. Uh, I remember she used to, in calculus, read to us. You're like, put your books down and just listen. And she would sit on her, her um, bar stool at the front of the class and read to us sections from um, uh, Richard Feynman books. So Richard Feynman, this amazing physicist, if you haven't read um, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, or any of his books, they're, they're spectacular. But she'd read to this us uh, these stories about um, real life, funny, fascinating situations where, you know, just the way that he thought um, would solve crazy problems or the way that he would bring in calculus into things where you wouldn't, and it made it real and relevant to us. And I think that she, um, I remember that senior year of high school, I went from being fearful like anxious around higher mathematics to being really, uh, to being intrigued by it. She de demystified the whole thing. And I figured out I was really good at it. But, but, but it's because I mean, the whole avenue, that whole branch of my, of my whole, that road would have been a road not taken mm -hmm. for me, if not for her. And I, the reason I mentioned this story to you is just because I think um, the takeaway for me is, is that one person taking an interest in the right moment can change the entire trajectory of somebody's life. And she was that for me at that moment. I, I love this story so much, Rich, because I feel it makes me go back to the times where we heard other people come on the podcast and mention something so similar. And they've dedicated a lot of their time now with their children's teachers to just show, share with them how their education and what they do to the kids is very important. I mean, it, it literally changed your life. Um, and there was really another life-changing thing that happened to you. And when you told us about it the other day, it made me laugh because you mentioned um, you weren't really quite interested in the uh, the energy industry, um, but you uh, you had a hard realization at Disney uh, Disney World, which I thought was funny because you mentioned Space Mountain, and I went to Disney World when I was seven, and I still remember Space Mountain. So I know how incredible that roller coaster ride is. Um, and anyhow, you rode this, you rode this ride. And after you were done, you were like, wow, I want to do some really cool stuff. Like at the time you were in civil engineering and you were like, I, I want to build really amazing things and have an impact on people's lives. And the roller coaster inspired you to do that. And so you went back and you, you switched your major to mechanical engineering. Um, 
And not only that, but what's really interesting is, is you tell your story from the beginning saying I wasn't very good at school. It was senior year and things changed for me. And I understood the concept, but you didn't just understand the concept. You essentially went in to, to almost get a PhD. You were headed that way. So, you know, and you kept studying because um, it was a passion of yours. Can you like take us back to this time and just tell us like how going through that and changing your your degree, but also going in and going into an industry after all of this um, was not the trajectory that you had originally planned. Um, and then uh, bring us bring us into Shell because I know that right after that that was that was how you got actually the the role at Shell um, at a career fair. So yeah. can you walk us through that? I'm happy to walk you through that, Jamie. I think maybe just the overarching story is that I'm a super bad planner. <laughs> like this story turned out to be pretty cool, but not by design, at least not my design. Disney continues even to this day to be sort of a, it's just, I don't know why it's just like this emotional place for me. Today's Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday. Tomorrow morning, I get in a plane with my 14 year old. We're going to fly to Orlando just to spend a weekend at Disney together, just because I don't know, that's what, what he and I do. I love it. Anyway, taking a step back, I've always loved technical stuff, just putting things together, taking things apart. A lot of that's my dad. He and I, we always build stuff together. When I was 14 and I asked him about my first car, he said, let's build a car together. And before his construction life, he was in car racing, of all things, and was around some pretty famous people in the racing industry. And he knew cars and he knew race cars. And so from... 14 years old to 16 years old, we were building my first car, which is this old like 1970s Camaro. It was a spectacular project. And I guess the point is like that love for that creativity, that love for technical, for building and creating and solving has lasted through time. And I did make a decision outside of Space Mountain at Disney World to change my major because I was in civil and I was in sort of building science, which at the time was headed toward commercial construction. I had defaulted to Maybe I'll do what my dad does. And it wasn't sitting right when something feels right. And when it doesn't mm. feel right, this didn't. I say my current wife, my wife-to-be, who I was dating at the time, we had just gotten off this ride in Orlando. And I remember I can point to the spot. And in fact, to my family's endless chagrin, I do every time point to the spot where yeah. I said, <laughs> I don't want to do building science. I don't want to do civil engineering. I want to build stuff like that, like the thing we just got off of. I want to build systems. And mechanical things that work and that like I pivoted there and I went into mechanical engineering. I studied that and figured out that I was good at it. And then again, this is how naive and poor planning. I thought, what if you're really good at mechanical engineering as an undergrad? That means that you need to go get a PhD and become a professor. For me, that was a total logical thing. I recognize how much of a non sequitur that is probably to your listeners, but it made perfect sense to me at the time. And so I went off to do a PhD in a combined area of fluid dynamics and thermodynamics and computational fluid physics. And I loved it. It was awesome. But several years into that journey, just this, again, it didn't feel right for me because I was in such a niche area in such like a narrow, super deep, but narrow area of academia that it was hard for me to see an impact. Like, I remember posting on a board, like, here's what I'm working on. Does anybody care? Like, are you interested? And nobody replied. <laughs> I had a bit of a crisis and I thought, gosh, I need to do something where I can 
make a difference, make an impact. And so I quit my PhD. I signed up to graduate and walk with the master's. I typed up a resume. I went to a job fair and I stood in a bunch of lines. And one of those lines was with Shell. And I've kind of always regretted not finishing the PhD, but I'm thankful that that decision I took at that point kind of led into the life that I have now where I'm able to make an impact and a difference. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technip FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now, back to the show. I think you did the right choice. <laughs> Look at where your story led you. Maybe you could have got a PhD and still ended up here, but I think going to that career fair after your master's and just kind of applying to Shell is a really great story to tell today. What we wanted to get into is a lot of people struggle at the beginning from going from just studying and this has been your life and even like master's and PhD and you're not used to the business world and like real life exposure to managing teams and running a PNL, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about those first few years when you started to work at the refinery for Shell? And maybe what are some of the biggest maybe leadership or management lessons that you learned early on? And was there a time maybe in those first five years of anybody's professional life where you you went through some challenges of maybe figuring out maybe this isn't where you want it to be or so far you were always changing your trajectory depending on what felt right? Was there ever a time where you went through a challenge and how did you come on top? Okay, it's a good question, Maciel. I think my first few years were probably the hardest in my career in terms of I didn't yet have the conviction that I was still on the right path. I'd been down so many blind alleys where I changed my mind and couldn't make a plan for myself that I felt very uncomfortable in those first few years. I knew nothing about energy. I'll never forget in my first week on the job, John Wilcox told me at this refinery in Alabama that I was going to be in charge of all of the check valves on the refinery. And I asked him what a check valve was. (laughs) I didn't know anything. I didn't know refineries. I didn't know the professional world. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. this whole world of big oil company, super smart people, highly polished people have a plan. They've got a vision. That was not me. And so felt really uncomfortable and frankly, not very well armed to navigate that world. Very uncomfortable. I had some extraordinary bosses along the way. And I had some real stinkers, (laughs) I think that helped me to sort of craft my own vision of what decent leadership looked like. But yeah, those are the first few years. I think in terms of to your second part of your question about lessons, maybe not particularly insightful, but to me, I think there's a lot of sophisticated answers out there to leadership recommendations and lessons. And these are not that, but I think they're more important. I think that there's nothing as a leader within a team, there's nothing that matters more than care for your people. 
there's nothing that matters more than building relationships based on trust and honesty and reliability and respect. If you think about all the stuff that we do, it's just stuff that we do. The question of who we are and how we treat people, it's the foundation of everything else. And I think that the way that we care for people is our license to ask people to cooperate and to achieve at work. And I think it's just so foundational and so neglected. And the easy thing is it takes no time, right? This is not like you've got to invest hundreds of hours a year. Like it's just taking an interest in the people around you that's genuine and sincere and human. For me, that's table stakes and just the world needs more of that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, especially in a time that we're in today. And it's just so important that you really never know what people are going through. And especially if you're managing a team, um, it's really important for you to understand and to also, it doesn't cost much to be nice. And I think that goes a long way, especially as a leader and a transparent one at that. There's a big important part of your journey where you applied for a business advisor role, which for those who don't know this in Shell, it's a pretty big role. It's basically where you shadow a leadership team member um, and get to learn everything about them and do a bit of what they do so that you have an opportunity to potentially move up quickly. However, when you applied for this role, you mentioned to us that there was a lot of people that were aligned for the job and that the possibility of you getting it might have been pretty slim. So what you decided to do was to actually go to the hiring manager and speak with them directly. You went and knocked on their door, never met them before, and you just took the risk, which I think says a lot about you, but also says a lot about what happens next because you actually end up getting the role. Can you tell us a little bit about taking action and not just your life, but the listeners here that might be in a situation too, that people trying to look for roles or trying to look for that next step. What kind of advice would you give them? And I know you also mentioned that knocking on the door could have gone the opposite way, but it didn't. It could have been a disaster. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Can I just go back really quickly, Jamie, to prior, because you said the word nice. I think that's a big, big, big part of care for people, but care for people is not always the same as nice. And so I think honesty, I wish that some of my leaders in the past had been more direct with me and more honest about things where I was deficient, where I was terrible. Yeah. Just... And calling it out in a spirit of care and saying, and this is how we're going to close that gap. That wouldn't have been nice, yeah, but it would would have been caring and it would have been honest. I just it's important to make sure that as we're on that path of honesty, that we also have the tough conversations like that help people improve. Oh, yes. Those are usually avoided. Those conversations are usually what people avoid. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy to avoid those conversations because you don't have the courage as a leader to have the conversation. It's vitally, it's core part of your job. And it wires directly into the integrity with which you lead. Mm. Soapbox off. Maybe I'll. <laughs> no, I love that you clarified. I love that you added that. Thank you. I think it's Good. really important to clarify that part of that is also giving the feedback and constructive. Got to. I, mean, I guess you call it constructive criticism or what is that? Constructive feedback. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not getting it, ask for it. And if you still don't get it, then ask somebody else. Yes. No, thanks, Rich, for that. On the question you asked, I'll try to be succinct here. It's a job. I was getting frustrated in my role, technical role. I felt like I was doing a good job, but I had more to offer. Our executive vice president, my predecessor several generations ago, his name was John Hollowell. He's this legend. He's this larger than life person who was running the global deep water business. And I had heard that his business advisor was leaving. She was heading off to her next stage in her career. And there was a really competitive process that had been kicked off for her successor. And I really wanted that job. And I knew that there were people who were way better than me who were going to compete for that job. Mm. I went up to the 31st floor in New Orleans 
And thankfully, Kathy Gossett was not at her desk at the time. It was right outside of John's office. And so she was not there to tackle me and prevent me from knocking on his door. I did. I had just finished a lunchtime workout. So I had some endorphins going and gave me a little bit of boldness. And John answered the door and I introduced myself. And I just said, John, I really want this job. I will work so hard for you and you'll be able to trust me. And that was my pitch. And he called me in and we sat down. I had a good long conversation. And John, I'll never forget. He told me two things that I remember. He probably talked for half an hour, but the two things I took away were, he said, look, Rich, I'm just a technician who got lucky along the way. And I thought I can resonate with that. And then he said, there's a lot of people that will be smarter than me, but nobody is going to work harder than me. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I, I get that too. Mm-hmm. Those years turned out to be the hardest and the best years of my career with John. I love when you shared that because sometimes you have to take those kind of risks. That is not easy to go knock on someone's door that maybe you don't have that relationship with and go offer yourself for this job when there's tons of competition out there. But you stood out. And so I really like that you shared that. And I hope it inspires other people to sometimes you know, think outside the box on how they're going to get that next step or network within their organization like that. One thing that we've talked to several leaders on the podcast about is that At some point, we've all felt stuck in our career. We felt stuck in a role, maybe in a business unit or kind of doing the same thing for multiple years. And you realize like, I'm not progressing as much as I would like. I'm not developing the skill sets that I want. And I have so much more in me to offer to your point, like you mentioned earlier. What advice would you have for those who are going through it, will be going through it? Because this is kind of like a given in everybody's career is that there's a point where you kind of have to get yourself out of your comfort zone. But What's some advice on how you can go talk to your employer about that or to your manager? Like, what's the kind of feedback that you should be asking for? Yeah, so I did feel super stuck. You're right, Masiel. I had been at the same kind of level in my career for six years or so. I felt stuck. I felt like I was doing value-adding work, like technically challenging, interesting work, but I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel appreciated. I felt like the next 20 years looked a lot like the last six, probably. Mm -hmm. And my boss at the time was not super keen to like drill down on that. (laughs) And that was frustrating. And it led to a few things maybe that I can speak to here in a second. But I think if you're in that kind of circumstance, you got to talk to your boss. You got to talk to whoever you're working for and say, hey, look, there's more of me that you can use, that you can leverage. I can do more. There's an important caveat. I think that you've got to make absolutely certain that you're currently doing great work. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to get more opportunity unless you're already doing fantastic work. The standard for me today is, am I extraordinary right where I'm at? Am I exceptional with the scope like that's already on my plate? And if the answer is yes, then I think proceed to step two. If the answer is no, then become extraordinary right Mm -hmm. where you're at before you try to climb. Because as the challenges get bigger and you're struggling where you're at, then maybe you access more challenge, but you're also going to access more risk. That foundation of excellence is key. Talk to your boss, say, I can do more. If that doesn't work, then find another leader that you admire and say, I can do more or find a subject that you want to learn more about and say, I know this is kind of weird, but I want to learn about your area. I want to give you a a day a week. How can I help? Ask them for project work. If you can't find that, then go get a degree. Go study something. I tried those paths. None of them worked. And I went off and I studied petroleum engineering. I went to Georgia Tech for mechanical, went to Shell, was in Shell for six years or so, and then went off and got a master's in petroleum because I had the time. I was just unsuccessful in using that spare capacity at the office. So I used it outside the office. I think the other two things are, if none of that stuff works for you, then 
I know this is not a particularly gratifying piece of advice, but I think that we do have to be patient sometimes. There's peaks and valleys and there's fast and slow. It's tough to sort of know what to do with that, but maybe sometimes the answer is just to be patient and be extraordinary and good things will come. That's what happened with me. And then the final thing is, if none of that works for you, is just jump, like have the boldness and the courage to find another opportunity, take off the safety belt and make that lateral move and try something different. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's so important though, the patience piece that you had mentioned, because I know from my own experience, just moving roles when I felt like that, I know that there could be a piece of if you would have just waited, what could have happened. But then again, you can't ever look back. But I do think that there is a part of patience. And even when you go and get those degrees, that can be that block of patience time, right? You spend two years going to get your master's. That's two years more that you are with the same company. And then maybe something happens. So I really like that you share that advice. And what I also want the audience to understand is that you didn't sit still. So it's not that you were asking for something or wanting something and then you sat. You actively went and asked for more work and you did more to educate yourself on topics and then utilize them in your daily job which I think are all really important things that people should consider doing. Also on this topic, I want to really open up about mentoring and sponsoring, because I know that you're very big into mentorship, especially regarding advancement in female talent. What have you seen work when it comes to mentoring relationships? I know when we spoke, you even talked about when you have a mentoring relationship, it's even important to have a mentoring contract, which I thought I actually have one of those with one of my mentors. So I do think it's essential that you both know what you're signing up for. It's not just a one-way street. Also to touch on the topic, I know there's a lot of confusion around mentors and sponsors. Can we talk a little bit about that as well? Good. Yep. Happy to. I think the contract thing is important to just make the implicit explicit and say, what is it we're trying to work on? Mm-hmm. How long do we want this relationship to last? How are we going to meet? What's your job? What's my job? What can you expect from me? What do I expect from you? Feels like an over-formalization, but I've seen a lot of mentoring type relationships go sideways because there's unstated misaligned expectations from the outset and everybody walks away feeling dissatisfied. So just put it on paper. I think it's a decision when it comes to mentoring and sort of coaching staff, it's a decision that creates some strong emotions. I think that if we want to make a difference in gender balance within leadership, then that means that leaders need to be clear and bold in the mentoring relationships that we prioritize. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes, by the way, for race and ethnicity, and there's other dimensions of team diversity. I want to acknowledge that it's not a uniformly popular thing to say that I'm going to disproportionately emphasize coaching of minority and female leaders. But you know what? It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those cases where you just have to stand up and say, my purpose leads me to this decision. And then you just let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. I think that explicit prioritization is important. I think that it's important to differentiate between mentoring and coaching and sponsorship. So mentoring and coaching is what we talk about. Sponsorship is my relationship to you when you're not in the room, mm-hmm. when we're resourcing jobs or when we're putting forward candidates. I have a belief that we tend to over mentor and under sponsor. Mm-hmm. And so trying to be very deliberate about that. And then maybe the fourth and final thing is mentoring and sponsoring. It's on the front end of the funnel. So you get a great new job, but sometimes then those folks, they get left alone in that great new job and they struggle. And maybe a more interesting question is what do you do after for that person after they get that great new job? It's just as important in the role that we play as leaders as is the role that we play in helping to get the job to begin with. Because it's not a win if you send somebody to Brunei and then they're lonely and isolated and they fail because they didn't have support. 
I just love everything that you mentioned and the fact that even at your level, you're extremely busy. That's something that maybe as you climb up the ladder and you've got so much going on that maybe mentorship is like one of those things that just falls off your radar. And maybe you could have done that when you had more time. But the fact that this is up on your priority list and also to your point of mentioning, like you're going to be very strategic on who you're going to mentor and make sure it it helps move the needle. You're going to be being an advocate, like you're a mentor change advocate. And I really love that you mentioned that. And also to your point is once they get certain roles, that's where you also need to be there for them because they're in now in a new challenging era. And even though you were mentoring them up to that point, we always need mentoring. Even people at high levels, they have coaches and mentors as well. So I really like that you mentioned that. One thing we were really interested about is we always talk about diverse teams and the data shows that they do the best type of business and they're successful, et cetera. But what we wanted to talk to you about is that you actually had this experience. So it's not just like data that we read somewhere. It's you can actually talk about this when you were appointed as CEO in Kazakhstan. And you mentioned that your team was just so diverse from not only different backgrounds, ethnicities, languages, but companies as well that kind of came together for this role that you were in. And you mentioned that it could have gone completely wrong with just how different everybody was, but it was extremely successful. And you took advantage of fostering those diversities and just the diversity of thought in general of the team. Can you share a little bit about kind of the diverse team that you led? Yeah, I'm happy to. One day when I'm on my back porch and I've got a a Coke in my hand and I'm thinking about my life and I'm in full retirement mode, those four years in Kazakhstan are going to be one of the real bright spots that I think back on. And if you've ever heard of Kashigan, you know that it won't be a bright spot because it's an easy business or an easy asset, whether technical, commercial, legal, fiscal, regulatory, like it was all pretty complicated. And on top of that, we had a shareholder structure with seven shareholders with KMG, Shell, ENI, Total, Exxon, Inpex, and CNPC, all brilliant companies. And there were seven of them. And then you had the standalone joint venture operating under this board. On paper, it was a disaster. In practice, it was, I mean, the project had a really complicated history, but my experience was, despite on paper, the fact that it looked like a recipe for failure, in reality, it was this spectacular, beautiful, magical, successful thing that happened as a consequence of us harnessing that diversity. We took production from 170,000 barrels a day to nearly half a million barrels equivalent per day. We reduced safety injuries by 85%. We reduced cost by 55%. The list of greatness went on. And I think that one of the root causes, or at least root enablers for that, is the fact that we did not have a monoculture. Mm-hmm. We had ENI and Total and Shell and CNP. So we had all these people with the cultures that they brought to the conversation, which completely prevented these malignancies that can grow inside of a monoculture without challenge. But there we had challenge. And so you've got this continuous improvement, this built-in continuous improvement through the diversity, which you can only get if people are psychologically safe to contribute, right? If people are scared and they don't speak up, then diversity doesn't work. But if they feel psychologically safe and you've got diversity, then what you get is like this Darwinistic, this best of the best, only the strong survives, best idea wins kind of culture. I don't know. You can probably tell I'm kind of excited about this. But um, got to write a book on that. But it was a great time, but great people. And I think it's a living, breathing case study in diversity. 
I just would have loved to just been a fly on the wall during all of this time that you were there because it seems like such an intriguing and yet just such a learning experience that you really don't ever get the opportunity to be a part of. It's so incredible to see it in action and you share that how diversity of thought is so essential and the results that happen from it. To close, I really wanted to talk about your kids and the conversations that you've had with them. It's really important to always educate the next generation that's going to be coming up on the energy transition, fossil fuels, what's going on in our world. And you had mentioned that like your youngest is like a big pro fossil fuel and then your older ones are, you know, they're good energy mix. But I just thought it was a really great conversation that you had with your kids and Can you tell us a little bit about how those balanced conversations go and the topics, but also for those listening and the younger generation that's interested in coming into energy, what does the future look like and how do you envision the future of the energy space? Okay. So the first part of your question is really easy. (laughs) (laughs) Second part, more complicated. So just in sequence, like in our house, we talk about real stuff. We make a priority of talking about current events and we have active conversations about current issues and we talk about conflict in the Middle East and what's going on there. We talk about Ukraine and we talk about why is there not a speaker of the house and we talk about this stuff. We always have. I think that your question about energy is I really slightly philosophical, but I think that there is this beautiful, invisible world all around us all the time that we never notice, but that our lives totally depend on. And you think about electricity, nobody thinks about that like most of the world, our food production, or you think how your car works or how your eyeballs work. And I think one of our jobs as parents is to help our kids to see the invisible, because I think there's a lot of other stuff around us all the time, media, TV, internet, that's just screaming for attention to focus on stuff that's really not all that important. Mm-hmm. And so one of those things that we talk about from time to time is energy. My kids know that 80% of the world's $100 trillion global economy runs on hydrocarbons. That's not something that we all necessarily cheer for, but at least we recognize and they know that that's a current reality. I think they also know, because they say it, we can do better. We've got to do better. So we talk about what's each of our roles in that complicated and necessary future where industries play a role and where governments play a role and where consumers play a role. And we wrestle through those things. And my two older kids are, they're not kids, by the way, they're young adults. I mean, <laughs> 20 and one's 18, my 14-year-old, I think he's still a kid, but the two older ones are much more data-driven, agnostic. My younger indeed is gung-ho, but I think that'll moderate with time and age. I think that polarized conversations are way, way easier because they require a lot less thinking than trying to imagine solutions and figure out pathways that will work that benefit humanity and that they're fair to developing countries and emerging economies and that manage huge risks. That's like dinnertime conversation for us, which is super bizarre, but it is what it is. (laughs) And it's a healthy thing in our family. No, Rich, I really wanted you to share that because I think it's important for us to have these conversations with our children and it's educational in that even the bits that you share with them, they share with their friends and then their friends share, and then you can spread so much knowledge through that. And lastly, just to finish off, do you have any books that you would recommend to our audience? They're always eager to read and to learn more. So do you have anything that you would recommend for them? The list is probably too long to rattle off. I appreciate the question. I really do. I think that maybe in the interest of time, looking at how long we've been going, for me, reading was a key unlocker. 
I think that if I had tried to innovate my way through a career pathway or through energy or through business leadership or through how to lead teams, it would have been a spectacular failure. Like there's no reason to innovate when it comes to leadership. You read some Marshall Goldsmith or read some Patrick Lencioni or read some Jim Collins about how to run businesses. Read some Chris McChesney, Four Disciplines of Execution, favorite all-time business book. Read some Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Weeks, about how to prioritize your life, about like what's important and what's not important, and how to say no to stuff that just sucks your time and doesn't give you a whole lot back. Read about leaders like Team of Rivals, like uh, Lincoln, Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's an amazing case study in leadership. Read Dan Jurgen. Read The Prize and read The Quest and read the new map about how energy works. And again, it's not about having brilliant new ideas. It's about having the discipline and the courage to implement the ideas that have already been had in the world that you lead. And that's why for me, reading is so key. I don't really know how to end this podcast because I could talk to you forever. And I think Masiel and I have so many questions, but due to time, and I just want to say, Rich, from your very beginning, I think that so many people are going to resonate with the fact that you are where you are today. And at the start, you really had no idea what you were going to do. And you tried multiple things and you went multiple directions. And then you were inspired by different things in your life that led you into the path that you chose. And then running and finding Shell. I remember when you told us that you didn't share, but you stood in different career fair lines. You were turned down by many. And then now the success, it's just been incredible. Rich, just thank you so much for spending time with us on Flipping the Barrel. And we are more than happy to have you here. And thank you for saying yes. Hey, thanks for the kind invitation. Let's do this every week. I loved it. <laughs> we love it. Part two. <laughs> Round two. Thank you, everybody, for joining and listening. So if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment. Check out our new Energy If You Know You Know podcast. We've released it on LinkedIn, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. And we hope to catch you on the next one. Thanks.